This is a podcast episode about consumers and how every business exists to serve consumers, but businesses tend to succeed when they can serve consumers where they are. You have to be somewhere that the consumers are. And it's been an interesting way in how that has evolved over time, where people, the the physical space that people are, the places that they actually live and exist is, is where a business has to meet those people. And sometimes, like if consumers are rural and they're spread out throughout the country, what does that mean? How do you reach those people? When people move to cities, how do you reach those people? When people move out of cities into suburbs, when people move from the suburbs onto the internet, how do you reach all of those people? One way to understand this situation is the Nigerian print email. In the early days of email, before there were a lot of good spam filters, and before there were a lot of good email structures, so people mostly got what they wanted, there were a lot of spam emails. One hallmark of a spam email is that so-and-so uh, needs has a, a windfall that is due to your family, and if you reply within a certain amount of time, you can collect your windfall. But, but key to these scammer emails, these Nigerian prince emails, was that there were full of spellings. There were all of these typographical mistakes in them where, you know, maybe your name would be misspelled, there would be run-on sentences and so forth and so on. And that was actually a marketing tool because as a Microsoft researcher pointed out, the really expensive part of a scam email is following up with that person. It's not collecting people. You need to collect people. You need the top of your funnel to be as wide as possible. But then when it comes to the intensive work, you need that to be narrow so that the intensive work is saved for the people who are actually going to buy your product, or in this case, the people who are actually going to be scammed. And so that's another way to think about this idea of being where your customers are. It doesn't make sense for a business to be everywhere if their customers are only in certain places. The place this story is going to begin is in 1861 in Wales. And the story doesn't actually begin there, but that is where we are at least going to pick as a starting point. And that was where Pierce Jones created the first mail order catalog. And it started in Wales in part because Jones was an enterprising person. He had a store there. Uh, The resources were available to create fabrics and cloths there. Uh, There was a a railroad station nearby where his store was. So all of these things came together where Jones was, uh, he knew how to assemble things, he knew how to sell things, and because of the railway system, he knew how to ship things as well. And in 1861, that was really important. Um, One of Jones's first uh, big products was he took a bunch of uh, sleeping bags that had been ordered by the Russian army, and he ended up selling them as sleeping blankets in his catalog. And so he was one of the first people who was really able to pick up on this idea and have the system in place for creating a mail order business. And 
And this was like a confluence of things. Many things had to happen at the same time. So for Jones, it had to be the location and the access to the sheep and the store and the railway line. Um, it has to be cheap printing. It was only in 1869 that the United States Continental Transcontinental Railway was completed. In 1872 in the United States, Aaron Montgomery Ward created the first American direct-to-consumer business in his catalog. And in 1888, we get the Sears catalog. And Sears business began selling watches, where a wholesaler had a bunch of watches and Sears was able to sell them along a railway line. And that's an interesting thread to keep in mind, is that the, the effect of infrastructure, like printing magazines and delivering products being railways, is really important in the early part of this story. But then as those two things shift, getting information to customers and then getting product to customers and being able to communicate with them, things shift as well. One really interesting angle to the creation of the Sears catalog that I discovered during this was uh, African-Americans, especially in the American South, who were able to buy without permission. Uh, during the Civil after the Civil War, um, just because the war was over didn't mean that segregation had finished. It didn't mean that shopkeepers were uh, perfectly fair in how they treated everyone. So... In some cases, store owners refused to sell to their African-American customers. And so um, Sears catalog was able to bypass this. It, it, was, it was blind to whoever their customers were. And Sears, in some ways, uh, promoted this. They said, describe in the early catalog, describe the thing you want and, and we'll find it for you. Uh, there's one example of a woman who wrote in who said that she needed rope to tie off a certain animal to a fence post. And she didn't necessarily describe uh, how big the animal was or what kind of climate she lived in. She just needed something that would fasten an animal to a fence. And so Sears encouraged this. And, and because Sears was going around the existing structure, the existing store owners didn't like Sears. In some towns, they would have catalog burning parties where they would destroy all the catalogs that uh, Sears had sent to the people in the town. Uh, Sears got around this by saying that, oh, um, you don't need to take your you don't need to take your uh, your your slip to the store. If you're going to mail in a request to us, take it right to the uh, to the post office in your town rather than dropping it off at the store. So we, so we make sure we get it. At this time, American racism was so strong that small town shopkeepers, not all of them, but some of them, were pointing out that you know we didn't we don't know who these this Sears and Roebuck are. And so there would actually be tours where Alva Roebuck went around the countryside and showed his face and he glad handed people. And, and he tried to make the case that Sears was a really good business and that you should support Sears and buy from Sears. Another important thing happened in 1896 that rural free delivery came about. Um, at, at the time, you couldn't have packages delivered to your home. You'd have to have them delivered uh, to a central place, and then you'd have to go and pick them up. And rural free delivery, uh, it was introduced in 1896, and so more and more people were able to get things delivered to their homes. In 1908, Sears started selling houses. You could buy a house kit from Sears. Uh, there were 370 style options. And 
1908, one in five people received the Sears catalog at their house. And the thinking around the Sears, uh, the Sears homes, the Sears houses, was that if you bought a Sears house, you would have more room to shop for other Sears things. And uh, Sears also offered financing. Uh, the program would go on to create 100,000 homes in a population of 92 uh, million Americans. This program succeeded for about two decades, but was put to bed by the onset of the Great Depression. Now, Sears and Montgomery Ward and Mr. Pierce are not the only ones doing this at this time. This idea of catalogs and shipping, we have rural mail delivery, all of these in the railroad, all of these things are coming together to create an environment where this uh, direct-to-consumer kind of business can be established. And in 1912, we get L.L. Bean entering the stage. And L.L. Bean is included here because it's an interesting way to focus on your customers. Now, now Sears and Montgomery Ward, they were selling things to the masses. You could buy anything in a Sears catalog. That was the appeal. Um, L.L. Bean uh, is a little different. It's founded um, based on the idea of there are certain people who need these clothes. Leon, Leon Wood Bean created L.L. Bean by finding a list of the out-of-state hunters that had registered for a Maine hunting license. And because he did this, he, he kind of solved that Nigerian prince problem, where, um, where is all the, where's the work and the cost with servicing my customers? Okay, I want to find mostly people who are going to be customers rather than everyone. So, so Mr. Bean, Leon Bean, he decided, oh, if I can just find the people who bought a hunting license last year, I will mail my catalog just to those people, and those will be the people who, who, buy my, uh, who buy my main duck boots. And the first duck boots were a bit of a mess. They ended up leaking. There was a flaw in the design. But, but L.L. Bean has this, uh, has this guarantee where you can send it back and get it replaced, get your money back. And, uh, and so L.L. Bean still exists to this day. But it, it's a really interesting example because it points out this idea of finding our customers and putting in the work specifically with them and kind of a creative way to do it that, that will be used by entrepreneurs for decades. 1914 to 1918 is uh, the years of World War I. By 19, in 1914, also Richard Sears, uh, co-founder of Sears and Roebuck, ends up passing away. In 1915, the Sears catalog peaks in size. Its total thickness and weight will never be larger than it is in 1915. And in part, this reflects connecting with customers. Where are your customers? Get your information to them. And so uh, what the catalog's peak signifies is this transition that'll also be highlighted after World War I, that people are moving from the rural parts of America to the more industrial, the more city parts of America. In 1924, something interesting happens at Montgomery Ward. They fire a man named Robert E. Wood. Wood was a former um, military supply man during World War I. So he just spent four years thinking about logistics for the American military. Uh, the very next year, in 1925, Robert E. Wood is hired by Sears, and Sears opens its first brick-and-mortar store and starts to think about uh, 
how can we do distribution shipping and service this growing population of people in the American cities? 1929 to 1933 is at least the first part of the American Depression. In 1933, Sears Christmas Catalog, The Wish Book, comes out. That's an interesting little bit of content marketing that's content marketing that still exists to this day. 1939 to 1945, we get World War II. And in 1950, Sam Walton opens up as a Benjamin Franklin, uh, Ben Franklin franchisee. And what's really interesting about Walton's story and situation is that he is also going to reflect this idea of where are the customers and how can I service them in the easiest way for them? Where are they physically at? And Walton learned a lot of what would go on to help Walmart succeed as a franchisee. He had worked in retail for a long time before he started the Walmart store. Also in 1950, we get the American Mall. The American Mall is another reflection of the changing demographics and the changing location of where people are. It's after World War One. it's after World War Two. we're gonna have the, the, the baby boom from all the returning GIs and the 1950s are going to see the rise of the automobile. They're going to see the rise of all of these hamburger franchises like Wendy's, McDonald's, In-N-Out Burger, all of these things. We also have the American Mall. We also have Walmart. In 1956, we get the National Highway Act. Uh, this is what Walter Cronkite said about the act at the time. Probably created this, the act, probably created the greatest change in our culture. When Eisenhower approved and pushed through Congress this great interstate highway network that we have now, he changed the entire face of America. And so things are changing. People are moving. They went from being rural to being urban. Now they are going to be suburb, and that's where people are. That's where the stores need to be. In 1956, we get the first American indoor shopping mall, a place where people can drive to. There's lots of parking. They can walk around inside. It's climate controlled. Um, not surprisingly, this mall opened in Minnesota. Um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Chicago. This, this north central part of the United States is going to be home of a lot of this mall innovation that's offered here. 1956, America gets its first mall. By 1960, there will be 4,500 malls in America. Um, around the same time, Walt Disney says that the first mall that was built is an inspiration for Epcot, one of his theme parks in Florida. By 1975, shopping malls account for 33% of all retail sales. In 1988, we get the founding of Seventh Generation. Much like the creation of L.L. Bean, it is a specific niche that founder Alan Newman wanted to sell into, this idea of resource-saving products uh, that are also good for people. And then into the 90s, we start to see this, this shift this early shift into internet-enabled businesses. In 1994, Kmart peaks in its total store count. That same year, Amazon is founded. 1995, we see the founding of eBay. And in 1999, we get the founding of Zappos. And the Zappos story is kind of interesting because it shows how, it shows specifically 
the shift from one way to find your customers and go to them to another. Prior to Zappos founding in 1999, there were a lot of different shoe stores and a lot of different malls across the country. That made sense. Uh, retail malls, malls accounted for one third of all retail dollars. And so it made sense for shoe stores to be in there and to pay those rents. And so Tony Shea has um, recently started a venture fund after uh, cashing out in a uh, search engine business sale to, I think it was Yahoo at the time, but, but Shea has enough money. He starts a venture fund. Um, this guy comes in and he's like, we should sell shoes online. And Tony Shea says, that's a stupid idea. Um, people have to, to try shoes on. You have, you know, you, you have to see if they fit, you know, if all, if all the things you're going to sell online, why do shoes? And that makes sense. If we think about Amazon started, Amazon started with books because books are freaking easy. Every book is identical to every other book. You can put books in a warehouse. You can ship books out. Books are sturdy. You know, someone doesn't try a book on and send it back because it doesn't fit or have to deal with that whole customer cycle. But, but, but Zappos worked. Shay had his mind convinced because of catalogs. It was catalogs that created the opportunity to sell, to sell shoes online because catalogs worked. People would buy shoes from catalogs. They'd buy them from the Sears catalog. There used to be this sports catalog that would show up at my house called, I think it was called East Bay. And East Bay was full of all this athletic apparel and, and shoes. And, and people would, would buy shoes from a catalog. And so people were, were willing to do this. And so in 1999, uh, we get the creation of Zappos. And, and we get, the, we get the, the, the internet boom, and then we get the internet bust. The internet bust was... You know, living through that uh, really reminds someone what it was like. Living, living through it gave me a personal experience. I was building websites at the time. And when the internet bust happened, it was like, oh, everything the naysayers mentioned about this was true. You know, this is not a business. This is not self-sustaining. This is not something that's going to stick around. And so I stopped, I stopped building websites uh, much, much to my mistake. And so, uh, fast forward, and we get to uh, 2008, and we get the Warby Parker guys meeting in a Wharton classroom, and they notice Zappos is succeeding with selling shoes online. They notice that Blue Nile is selling diamonds online, and they notice that glasses are also being sold online. Prior to Warby Parker being founded, someone could buy inexpensive prescription eyeglasses on the internet. That existed. So. How does Warby Parker come in and create a really successful business by, by charging more? And the reason is, is that they go to where their customers are and they deliver what their customers um, want to deliver. One of the Parkers would go on to say this. We didn't want to just compete on price. We wanted to build a business where our customers didn't have to make any sacrifices. And so Warby Parker... Uh, succeed selling glasses online because that's where the people are. 2012, we get the very famous YouTube video, Hi, I'm Mike, founder of DollarShaveClub.com. It's a great video, and it's also a great time for a video. Uh, by 2012, you could put things on YouTube, and they could go viral. And that's the story. That's the consumer story. That's the direct-to-consumer story. Wherever people are, wherever they physically are, wherever their mind space is, is where a business needs to be to serve their customers. 
In the early days, when people were in rural areas, the content marketing known as a catalog worked well because it got the information to people. And then with the evolution and development of postal services and rail deliveries and fitting in with the changing norms in the culture of an area, mail delivery via catalogs worked really well. As people move to cities, as they change their buying habits and consumption habits, the downtown area of a city was best, and it's why businesses like Montgomery Ward and Sears also succeeded there. It worked because the customers could get the information. They could find out about the product. They can be uh, helped by a service person while we were there, while they were there. After the two world wars, there was another shift in the American culture, in the way people lived, in where they lived. The, 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 cha- the place changed from, I'm living on the farm, I'm living in the city, to I'm living in my car. And so with the creation of car culture, we get malls with giant parking lots. All the cars can come and park there and people can walk around there. We get the creation of, oh, I'm in my car. I need to eat in my car. So we get fast food and the development of places like In-N-Out Burger and McDonald's. And then things change again. The 70s give way to the 80s, give way to the 90s. Oh, the 90s, the internet. Where are people now? People have moved from being in their cars to being on their phones, on their computers. They're on the internet. They're connected to everyone else. And we see the rise of all of the other internet-enabled brands. We see direct-to-consumer shoes. We see direct-to-consumer glasses. We see direct-to-consumer, all these other things. And what's notable about um, the Warby Parker situation is it wasn't just glasses. I mean, if glasses were just a utility, if they were fungible, if they were like buying a potato at the grocery store, it wouldn't matter. You could compete on price. But what Warby Parker did is they reframed the job of glasses. Oh, glasses Glasses are style. Glasses are um, a social symbol. Glasses are, you know, you want to buy these more expensive glasses because of this. And that was part of the reason that Warby Parker succeeded. But each of these situations, each of these stories, it all comes down to where are people? Where are your customers? How do you find them? How do you inexpensively find them? For scam emails, you have to find people that are initially gullible, and that means having misspellings. For the Sears catalog, you had to create something interesting that people would keep and they would have out on their living room table. In the era of of city stores, you had to have big window displays that people could walk out, walk by and look at. In the area of cars, you had to have an attractive store in a mall that people wanted to go to. In the area of the internet, you have to tell a story, you have to find solve a job to be done. I recorded this episode outside, and so the audio probably isn't as good as other ones. Not that those are great. Thank you for putting up with me. This episode was also going to be part of a larger project, but it just got pushed and pushed and pushed to the back burner, and it was never going to get done. So I figured a good enough, a superficial, a quick overview of the consumer landscape now, um, even roughly done, was better than never sharing this at all. So as always, thanks again for listening to this episode.